Hi, and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. Uh, we are a no bullshit discussion about reimagining religion and remixing spiritual practices in a way that's secular and inclusive to all. I'm Samson Jones. And I'm James Croft. And we've got an amazing guest today, John Viveki. He is a cognitive scientist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto. And we were both so excited to speak to him as he has undertaken an amazing examination and integration of modern cognitive science, ancient wisdom practices, philosophy, history, basically mm. everything, which he explores in his incredible YouTube series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Now, it's a bit complicated, but John's theory is basically this. Our culture today is beset by multiple overlapping crises, which make our lives really difficult. Financial crises, ecological, political, tons of crises all on top of each other. But underlying and connecting all of them is a crisis of meaning. The sense that we've lost a narrative which situates us in the world, which helps us make sense of it all. We explore a lot in this discussion, but we think you'll take away these three things. First, you'll understand how our increased sense of loneliness and disconnection is related to the loss of big picture meaning in our lives. Second, uh, you'll learn from a cognitive scientific viewpoint how religions fulfill deep human needs which haven't gone away in our more secular age. And what's great about him is that he like, got, he's got the science down, he's doing the research, but he totally understands and empathise with these wisdom traditions. And that's the third thing you'll learn from John. You'll learn about the new science of wisdom. Obviously, this is at the centre of many religions and traditions throughout the ages. And we ask, how might we cultivate wisdom today? And I was going to say word of warning, but, you know, it could also be a huge... These are the, exactly the sorts of conversations that I love and James and I love. Word of warning or, I mean, probably enticement to some people. John is a very conceptual thinker. This is exactly the sort of conversation that James and I love. But, like, John really does speak as though he eats a thesaurus a day. It's a conversation that's really rewarding. It's rich. But, uh, you know, like a Christmas pudding, that richness can sometimes feel a bit dense. But just stick with it. This is the theory behind so many of the practices that you will be doing, that you'll be interested in. It's really vital for integrating the sort of that wisdom from the past with the knowledge that we have today, combining the scientific and the historic, like we think you'll like it. We think you'll love it. So here goes. One final thing before the podcast starts is that I have to tell you about Lifefulness 101. It is a course that we are launching in January this year and go to Lifefulness 101, Google it will probably turn up, uh, and it is a 12-week online course, and it is a collective learning experience that is dedicated to helping you, to helping anyone to live their most meaningful uh, goals in 2021. And look here, 2020 has sucked, but I think one of the like best things about it has been that you know, we've all learned what is important to us. And my big fear in this moment is that, you know, we go and learn all these things and then suddenly, you know, it opens up again and we just go back to business as usual. And so if you go to Life on This 101, you can go and find out more. We're so pleased to have put it together and uh, we'd love you to be part of it. So uh, anyway, on with the John Verveke. So, uh, welcome, uh, John, to the Lifefulness Podcast. You're here with me, uh, Sanderson Jones, one of the hosts, and then also... With me, James Croft. How's it going? Good, thank you. Very, very happy to be here. Uh, that is good to hear. And so, uh, what we always like to do with our guests, actually, we've only just started doing this recently, is just to run over what Lifefulness is about and uh, the sort of conversation we want to have. And so, James and I are writing a book on... A lifefulness, which is this idea of can we adapt the techniques of the spiritual community and the congregation in a way that everyone can take part? Uh, because mm -hmm. we think that the 
technologies, spiritual technologies, psychotechnologies, whatever you want to call them, shouldn't be left in this box, marked religious, but no. uh, should be able to be used by as many people as possible. So is that all clear? Very clear. That overlaps with a lot of my own work. That is exactly why I loved your amazing series uh, on awakening from the meaning crisis. We're going to dive into lots of that. But before we do that, we would uh, like to ask you uh, a question we want to ask everyone, which was what was the spiritual uh, background that you had or philosophical or religious, whichever way you want to interpret it in your childhood? Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a bit of a, a story. I was brought up uh, within a fundamentalist Christian household, an extended family. Um, and so um, I, I, I think of it, I, I call it your mother religion, like you have a mother tongue. It left, um, it left an imprint on me uh, for good and for ill. I mean, I found the, the experience upon reflection, as I, uh, after I, I left uh, Christianity, I found uh, upon reflection that uh, there was a lot of elements of that experience were, that were very traumatic for me. And I mean that in a psychological sense, not just in a hyperbolic sense. For a, an extended period, I was very um, antagonistic, even sort of religiously allergic. Um, but what happened was um, I got interested, even in sort of high school because of literature, um, on the whole issue of what made a life meaningful. No doubt because there was a bit of a rain shadow uh, coming out of a religious framework. So at, at first it was a very personal project. But when I got into university, I encountered the figure of Socrates uh, within the writings of Plato. And this awoke in me. It's like when you meet somebody that you fall in love with them and you, you, you uh, I didn't realize I had this need that you're meeting um, kind of thing. And that's very much <clears throat> what happened to me when I met, uh, met the figure of Socrates, as Pierre Hadot put it. And this, this idea of being able to make a life more meaningful through the cultivation of wisdom uh, deeply resonated with me. Um, but what happens, it, it, uh, even though it's in the, you know, philosophia, the love of wisdom is in the title of the discipline. After you take your first introductory course, the topic of wisdom is never discussed again uh, in academic philosophy. And that was the case until, you know, until very recently, it's, it's starting to open up again now. And so while this, I, I continued on in philosophy and then later on independently in cognitive science, uh, because I found the philosophical aspects of meta science and metacultural critique very valuable, but that hunger for uh, genuine transformation and the aspiration to wisdom was, was very pronounced in me. So I took up, I'm, I just, uh, because of where I lived, I went to a place and they were teaching an ecology of practices. That's where I got the idea from, of, uh, of, uh, of a past meditation, metacontemplation, uh, Tai Chi Chuan. And I, I explicitly went there because I wanted to cultivate wisdom. Uh, and, I, it, it, and, and, and there I was exposed very deeply uh, to Taoism and Buddhism. And, and these are the kinds of things that you really, own. it's like swimming you or making love. You don't really understand it unless you're practicing it. Um, and so as I practiced those, as I practiced the ecology, I got very deeply into uh, th these religions. And at the same time, that started to make me reflect upon corresponding, at least structurally analogous aspects of Christianity, mystical traditions, transformative traditions, spiritual exercises. And at the same time, I discovered the work of Pierre Hadot and how ancient philosophy, and that's the thing I was very looking for in Sakar. Socrates. And then this is when about the same time the mindfulness revolution was taking off and then the recovery of ancient philosophy as a spiritual practice was taking off. It was just going to germinate in things like the Stoicism revival that's happening right now. And so what happened is I started to uh, get reoriented towards uh, spirituality and even a more appreciative role, a relationship to uh, religious uh, traditions. And at the same time that was happening, uh, I, had, I had finished uh, sort of pure philosophy and I got very deeply into cognitive science. About that time, cognitive science was starting to talk about, um, first in psychology and then more in philosophy, it was talking about transformative experiences, mindfulness, wisdom, mystical experiences, and people were doing experiments. I do experiments on this. And so the possibility that the science and the spirituality could deeply talk to each other uh, just came together for me. And at the same time as that was happening for me, 
um, as I was starting to teach this stuff to my students, they were getting like really like do more of this, this other thing you're doing, and that that and that just grew and grew and grew. And then along the same lines, uh, you know, about uh, almost two decades ago, I started teaching the, these spiritual exercises. I started teaching uh, meditation, contemplation, Tai Chi Chuan, Qi Kung. And more recently, I've started to teach uh, sets of spiritual exercises drawn from uh, the Western wisdom traditions, Epicureanism, Stoicism, Neoplatonism. So that's, that's sort of my journey. I mean, that is a great journey. And if people weren't, uh, haven't, not watching this on YouTube, because so far we haven't put these up yet on YouTube. Uh, my head was bobbing up and down like a <laughs> nodding dog on the back of a car because like when I uh, sort of started with lifefulness, there were like so many of the things that you're talking about in terms of religion and connecting it to science. And I think actually in the literature, people have, got, have done this more with Buddhism, because I think people mm -hmm. have had like a bit of a religious allergy to sort of looking at the positive sides of Christianity or other mm. traditions which have got, which are less about a technique of the mind and, uh, and mm -hmm. so finding your work and then how it connects from uh, the personal, but then also to the historical and the social. Basically, I had a bit of a Socrates, you're my Socrates. That's what I'm saying. Uh, uh, no pressure. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of pressure. Uh, uh, no, don't, don't, don't worry. It's, uh, not, not so much. Uh, and before we uh, get on asking you even more questions, we always ask people, uh, that it's a bit of a speed round this, and we've broken down the six component parts of a, of a congregation in a very pragmatic way from looking at one of the most uh, well-known uh, and popular books on congregation building the purpose-driven church and then adapting it in a uh, secular way and so then there's six components of lifefulness and we're going to do a speed round and we're just going to ask you to see if you can knock them off quickly so we can dive into your specialist subject but at the same time these questions are massive so it's a real challenge and we'll interrupt if you're going on for too long but in a friendly way uh, okay i'll try my best so, this sounds like fun yeah yeah yeah. the first and the first question is absolute doozy what for you is your sense of ultimate meaning your divine your uh value which is uh you hold to be sacred so for me um i'm deeply influenced by the platonic model that we have two meta drives in addition to the satisfaction of a goal we want that satisfaction of any goal to be one in which uh is consonant with and perhaps affording of uh inner peace that we have uh, appropriately structured the psyche so that it is uh, optimally functioning so that i get sort of uh the best mutual society of being between all the parts of my psyche. So they're living as best they can with each other. Uh, in addition to any goal being satisfied, I want what satisfies my goal to be real. That's why people will reliably say they want to know if their, their partner is cheating on them, even if this means the destruction of this incredibly wonderful relationship that they're in, because they want it to be real. And so for me, uh, meaning in life is, and we can talk about this later, is uh, about being uh, 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 dynamically coupled, connected to myself, uh, to, each, to other people and to the world. And if I'm dynamically coupled to them in a way in which I am mutually opening up and affording inner peace and a connectedness to what is most real, that to me is what makes life most meaningful. The aspect of reality that continually affords the emergence of more and more meaning in life. That's what I call sacredness. Thanks so much. We're up to three metas and we're already only seven, uh, <laughs> seven in. Uh, and then the second uh, pillar is, we call it celebration and devotion. And it's this idea of translation of worship. Like what does uh, personal and group worship uh, look like to you? Uh, so for me, uh, again, my model there is sort of deeply influenced by Neoplatonism um, and, and the way it's very similar to aspects of Taoism and Buddhism. Uh, for me, um, I, I don't know if I have something like worship, but I have something very much like devotion. Um, and what that is to me is to rationally aspire to the, uh, the transformation 
and the sets of truths that can only be disclosed through transformation that will, well, that will reliably put me into a state in which I can afford the experience of sacredness with myself and other people. Great. Thanks so much. He's doing this so well. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You're just really knocking them out. So the next one is community life. So where do you find your community? Who are your people? It seems to me, although I never set out to do this, but it seems to me, it keeps falling to me that um, I'm good at building communities. Um, uh, So, I mean, I mean, I I worked very hard to build a community uh, at the University of Toronto for the Cognitive Science Student Association, and um, they won an award for being one of the best uh, student groups in like the world. Um, Go, John. They have, Go John. Go John. Well, they 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 have a lot they have a lot to do with that too. Uh, <laughs> but um, classic community building. Give them the credit. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's true. <laughs> um, so I mean. They're typically there. There's a community that has built up around the online meditation and contemplation and wisdom cultivation courses I do. There's a sangha. Uh, that community has integrated with another community that has grown up a Discord server community that is people that have been drawn together by my work and uh, practice. And so I work as sort of, I, I guess, um, uh, the, the resident exemplar uh, and teacher for those two communities. And then I do a lot of work to try and get those communities in uh, fruitful and good faith discussion with other emerging communities and ecologies of practices like the communities springing up around uh, the integration of mindfulness and bodied movement. Uh, Rafe Kelly is somebody I talk a lot to, um, but um, you know, a lot of these other communities, I go to conferences to try and facilitate that networking. Um, so, and then, of course, I have a, a community of people that are in concert with me to try and build uh, these projects. Uh, and in fact, I'm, the project that I'm engaging in, just sent a book in for publication, is all about um, what are the strategies by which we can uh, reformulate and reinvent dialogue so people can get into group flow states that enhance the cultivation of wisdom and self-transcendence as a way of replacing wow. the kind of adversarial zero-sum uh, conversations that are prominent and so uh, pernicious in today's culture. You're just the right person for us to be speaking to, mate. I could see how Sanderson was getting so excited about everything yeah, you're yeah, saying. Yeah, I am. You're really vibing. Uh, the... <laughs> <laughs> that's, okay, that's good. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, yeah, the other part, the next part is uh, uh, this idea of spiritual pathway. What would be your, where are you sort of growing personally? What pathway are you on? Uh, so the pathway I'm on is, I mean, part of it is to try and explicate, articulate, and hopefully improve a kind of pedagogical program in which you have uh, skill scaffolding that take people appropriately through sequences of transformation where each stage affords the next stage uh, so that can pe- people can cultivate uh, uh, an ecology of practices and they can get proper exposure to a rich repertoire and proper training on how to curate um, and coordinate and collate those practices into a vibrant ecology of practices for them. So that for me is something that I'm deeply interested in and pursuing right now, because that is a place in which I can do sort of what I consider my my mission, which is to try and afford, not just theoretically, but existentially, a deep integration between science and spirituality so people can in their guts of their lives respond to the meaning crisis. That's, 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 that's my journey. James, do you think we've done number, the next two was serving others and changing the world. And I'm just wondering whether we've sort of, you've knocked them, both of them off. I kind of feel like you might have an eye, and you said the meaning crisis there, and I kind of want to dig into that. I really want to get into that. (laughs) Uh, Well, look, so that's what, uh, yeah, that's sort of the, uh, the how we're unpacking this idea of uh, lifefulness of how you can go. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, thanks a lot. It's really, and so much of that stuff you spoke about, like looking at, so if for listeners who haven't heard this, John's got this amazing uh, lecture series in his work to actually look at these different traditions and actually how can you put a, 
a lens over them where you're not inventing everything which leads up to it, but it's a way of connecting it. And then once you've connected it, how can you go and apply it in different places? And so that's why uh, so we, uh, I go and work in companies, but then I also work individually. And there's also the Sunday Assembly communities. Sometimes it feels like a lot and because it's such a big project, but uh, we're figuring it out and this podcast is part of it. The first question that we wanted to ask you was because this, the meaning crisis can, I think for a lot of people seem quite abstract. Like we know what it's like to be in an economic crisis. We know what it's like to uh, be in a mental health crisis. All of these other things can be more uh, tangible. So it'd be great. We thought uh, it'd be good for you to maybe try to unpack some ways that the meaning crisis is playing out at this moment in mm -hmm. the American general election, which is happening tonight as we speak. So just uh -huh. like looking at like, what are some of the themes that you see from the meaning crisis sort of playing out in this thing which people are paying a lot of attention to? In the election, I was gonna to talk to you about the UK and the, the recent survey about like, you know, 89% of people rate their lives as meaningless and things like that. But let's do, let's do the US right now because I'm in Canada. Uh, so I am terrifyingly close to the unfolding thing. Uh, so some aspects of the meaning crisis, I think you can find pervasive uh, uh, what's going on in the United States. Um, and uppermost in my mind, and, and so I want to make clear that a lot of this is work that I'm doing in concert with Christopher Master Pietro. Um, Chris is my co-author in a lot of this work, uh, a dear, dear friend of mine. Uh, he's the co-editor of the book we're putting out uh, on inner and outer dialogues. Um, and so I just wanted that, I just wanted to get that out there very clearly. We'll cut it and make you seem like a real megalomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> we'll really well, show this John Vervaker character. He seems to be being too nice. Need to change to, the <laughs> Yeah, we got to do something to just to smirch it. Um, yeah, so um, a, a, I need a little bit of a preamble to answer this. Yeah, go for it. But, okay, so the idea is uh, what I said before. We use this term meaning in life and we're using a metaphor where the metaphor is drawn from language because sentences are, they have semantic meaning to us. And what we mean by that semantically is that there's, there's a pattern to the words that somehow makes them fit together. So they fit me and they make the world and me fit together. So I can right, understand the world, I can understand you. And what we're saying is there, there's something analogous to our, uh, uh, there's patterns in our lives that somehow fit things together, make them coherent, so that I can fit the world and the world can fit me, et cetera. And then the question to ask is, well, what are those kinds of patterns? And, and here's an idea that basically comes out of what's called 4E cognitive science, that we have multiple ways of knowing the world and understanding the world. Um, one is a propositional way, and, uh, right? And, that, and that's, that's carried by our beliefs. Uh, I know that cats are mammals, and I believe that's the case. And that carries with it a sense of conviction. And if I'm right, it's true. But that's very different from my procedural knowing. That's knowing how, knowing how to catch a ball. And that doesn't result in, or knowing how to swim, right? That doesn't result in beliefs, it results in skills. And the point about skills, right, is that it, I don't, they don't come with a sense of conviction, they come with a sense of power. My skills, my skills are either clumsy or they're apt. And if I do a skill, skills well enough, I have expertise. And notice that I have distinct kinds of memory. I have semantic memory for propositions, and I have procedural memory for my skills. But in addition to that, uh, I have perspectival knowing. What's perspectival knowing? Well, perspectival knowing is what's happening right here, right now, because I have a particular state of consciousness. I have a sense of what it's like to be in this state of mind here now. It'd be different if I was in a different place or if I was drunk in this place, right? And so things are being foregrounded, backgrounded. There's all this salience landscaping going on. And what that gives me is a situational awareness. And then I don't have a sense of conviction or a sense of power. I, I have what, and we know this from video game research, virtual reality, I have a sense of presence that I'm really here now. And if that's doing well, I have situational awareness, which helps me, which tells me which skills should I apply or which skills should I acquire. And that is stored in your episodic memory. And then you have participatory knowing. This is the knowing 
that comes from you being the kind of being you are, having the kind of mind and body you have, shaped by evolution, shaped by culture, and shaped by, uh, you know, uh, your particular idiosyncratic history. It's the way in which the world and you are mutually shaped together, and it creates what are called affordances. This object is graspable by me because of the way my hand and this object can, uh, have been mutually shaped to fit each other. This shaped by evolution, this shaped by culture to fit each other. So there's all these affordances, and I know these things by the way in which I co-identify with them, the way the, my agency and the world co-shape and fit and belong together. And you know this is lacking when you go like to another culture and you experience culture shock, or you know it's sometimes lacking when you feel lonely because you don't have the affordance, you don't have social affordances from other people. And that, right, what that gives me is that gives me a, this, right, this sense of, uh, of affordance, of belonging, and it doesn't carry with it like a sense of, of conviction or power or presence. It carries with it a sense of identity. I'm in a, a deeply coordinated fashion projecting an identity on you guys and assuming a corresponding identity for myself so that affordances for communication, for example, are opening up between us. And so that is, I know this identity by being it. I know it by being it. I participate in it, right? And what, what, what that means, right, is that the kind of memory is not semantic or procedural or episodic. It's that kind of memory we call autobiographical. It's your, it's your sense of self. It's that deep kind of memory. Now here's, why am I going on? Notice how these all work differently. They have, all, they have different standards of normativity. They have different kinds of memory. And here's the point I wanna make. Most of the connectedness that I've been talking about that makes meaning in life comes at the procedural, perspectival, and participatory level. But what our culture has done has fallen into deep forgetfulness and exclusion of those. And we have reduced who and what we are and how, to the propositional level. And what does that show up as? That shows up as I try to get all of the meaning missing from these other kinds of knowing in my propositional knowing by having sets of beliefs that somehow are shared with everybody. And so what is that? That's, ideo that's ideology. And because I'm in a scarcity of meaning, I'm desperate to make that propositional ideological framework, right, imperially victorious over any possible threats to it, because it's the last little shred I have left of my capacity to connect to, uh, to, connect to myself, to connect to others, and connect to the world in a meaningful fashion. So what happens is I reduce all of knowing and all of my being as a cognitive agent to a kind of propositional tyranny, and I'm engaged in a zero-sum adversarial warfare with everybody around me, because that's the only place within which I can gather together the last remaining scraps of the meaning that I am so hungry for. And what's that got to do with the American election? <laughs> LOL! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, great. Thanks so much for that. And then just again, ground it into some things, because by the way, we've got different skills in life. Before I did this, I was a stand up. And uh, <laughs> when you <laughs> yeah. began talking, I remembered one, uh, after I listened to your podcast, I said to my wife, uh, I said, what's better than a metaphor? A meta five. Uh, <laughs> and so we're doing different things. It's so bad. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then so how would it then in, in sort of people's, I mean, obviously people can go and extrapolate from some of the stuff you're saying about the election, but like, again, now rooting in people's lived experiences, like what are some ways that this meaning crisis is oh, yeah, like yeah. showing up in like the struggles that we've got or the, the fears and, you know, what it means to be a human. Well, let, let's take a look at that. Uh, so, um, I've talked about these ways of knowing and the, the, the ways in which we're connected, dynamically connected. So here's the point I, I want to make that we, we, we shouldn't think of cognition anymore as sort of computation in your head. You should think of cognition as a very, uh, as a self-organizing process 
happening within your brain and body, and also importantly, between you and the world. What does that that mean? Like, again, because like, you know, as a self-organizing, because like, I I love your stuff, but there might be some people going, okay, yeah, so like, yeah, like break that down uh, even. Sure, sure, sure. So uh, the idea is, uh, let's take, let's compare two self, two kinds of self. So the idea of a self-organizing system is uh, the system, uh, there's causal interaction that creates a structure, and then the structure helps to constrain the causal interactions. And, and, and here's a very clear example of this, and it's a special kind of self-organizing thing, living things. So I'm a living thing, presumably, right? Uh, and what happens is um, uh, there's all kinds of uh, events, chemical events happening in my body. And what they do is they make this particular molecular structure. Now, what does that molecular structure do? Well, it divides the external world from what's inside my body. Well, why? Because it allows me to create an internal environment that's very different from the external environment. What's the point of that? Well, this internal environment increases the probability that certain kinds of chemical reactions will occur, right? So for example, um, I have sugar in my apartment, but it's not generally just you know, uh, combusting and, re- and releasing energy. That's a very low probability event. But sugar being transformed into energy is a very high probability in, in my internal environment. So look at what happens. The system self-organizes because the causal events create a structure, and then the structure shapes the possibility of the causal events. So the causal events are much more likely to happen, which then creates the structure, which then makes the events more like, does that make sense? Yeah. And the whole thing is, right. Now, many things are self-organizing that aren't alive. A tornado is self-organizing. The problem with a a tornado be self-organizing is it's not organized to function to find the conditions that will maintain its existence. That's different from a paramecium. A paramecium is a self-organizing thing that is structured to seek out the conditions that will matter to it. Now listen to that word, matter to it. You literally take in the matter and make yourself out of it, or that are important imports to it. So life, things matter to life and are important to life, but at a physical level. At a cognitive level, you are an autopoetic thing. You are constantly trying to find the things that matter to you and are important to you, not on a, you know, a physiological level, but on the level of your information processing. So uh, all of the information available to you in the environment, it's combinatorially explosive. You have to find, you care about, you, you focus your attention, you find salient only some subset of that. And that's the, that's the matter you import in. Those are the important things in your world, the things you care about, and, and they matter to you, and they matter to your mind. So that's what I mean about your cognition is a self-organizing thing that is dynamically coupled to the environment. This is my friend and colleague Evan Thompson's idea that there's a deep continuity between how life is principled to organize and how the mind is principled to organize. Did that, did that help? Yeah, that's great. And so we're seeking out these things. And so we've got, and then why am I unhappy because uh, my house is uh, too small? Why have I, am I having a mental health crisis? Well, actually I live in London, so it's truth in that. Uh, why, am, uh, why am I comparing myself to others? Like what is it sure, about sure. this meaning crisis which is causing me issues? Okay, so th- th- that or so let's a go back person. To, yeah, well, anyone. Let's let's go back to that. So notice what we said. You've got this really complex, dynamically self-organizing, you know, autopoetic, self-making, living thing, right? And and so this is how. And what what's this? What's it seeking? It's seeking the relevant information, which means it has to ignore most of the information. That's how it's adaptive right? That's how it's adaptive. Now, here's the thing. By being the very process that's making you adaptive is also making you susceptible to self-deception. Because if I'm finding this salient and not that, this is a biasing of my attention. And when that biasing goes wrong, I fall into self-deception. Let me give you an example of this. And it's a pre-COVID example. If I wanted to try and calculate the probability of an event, 
that would be what's called combinatorial explosive. If I try to actually, because I'd have to take into account all of these factors, all of their interconnections, the calculations would overwhelm a supercomputer given the rest of the history of the universe. So, so life is just like, like to make it like it's too complicated for us. Way, like, way, any, like all the time. Yeah. All the time. And it's always been that way, by the way. It's not just because of what's happening now. We've just made it more obvious and apparent in certain ways. But so it's always like that. So our cognition is incredibly adaptive, right? But we can't possibly calculate the probabilities. So what do we do? Well, we bias our attention. We try, we try to ignore most of the information and we use these kind of processes they are called heuristics. So for example, how would I evaluate how probable an event is? Well, one of the things I do is I, I do this. I see how easy it is for me to imagine it or remember it. If I can imagine or remember it, it's probably a very probable event, okay? Another thing I do is when people talk about the event, do they talk about it in sort of generic terms or do they talk about it in really superlative terms, right? Because if they talk about it really powerfully, it's probably a very probable event. So this is what happened in pre-COVID days. You take your loved one to the airport. And then you say to them all these euphemisms for don't die, which is text me if you get there, have a safe trip. You're just saying, I love you, don't die, don't die. Because but you say text you when, you when you get there, not if you get there. I think that if, it very much changes the... Well, well... How that yeah, sentence yeah. lands. Well, the thing is, you're, you're actually thinking if, and you're saying when, because you, you've got this really magical belief that somehow, right, if the plane is about is starting to crash, well, wait, we can't crash because I have to text my, my lover, right? So, um, so, but what happens? What happens to us? Well, we can easily imagine a plane crashing. Why? Because it's a big, heavy metal object. So it's easy to imagine falling uh, because we're Aristotelians in how we think things fall. And when, when a plane crashes, do they call it a crash or an accident? No, they call it a tragedy or disaster. So what we're thinking is, oh no, I can easily imagine it crashing. And if it crashes, it's a disaster. So it's highly probable that the plane is gonna crash. And so we're terrified and we say, don't, don't, don't die. And then we turn around and without thinking about it, we get, out, we get into the North American death machine, the automobile. And it doesn't, it doesn't even occur to us how dangerous this vehicle is. The very processes that ma are making us adaptive by help, having us zero in on some information as important or mattering also make us perpetually susceptible to self-deception. And the problem with that self-deception is it cuts away at that adaptive fittedness. It cuts away at the connections that make life meaningful. So what have human beings done perennially across time and history, and you see how this links to the spirituality, they have cultivated ecologies of practices for compensating, ameliorating the self-deception that arises as we use our intelligence and for trying to enhance the connectedness, the, meaningful, the meaning in life that we might lose as we have been hurt or damaged by self-deception. That's wisdom. That's what wisdom is. So what happens in people's lives is we perennially need wisdom, but where do you go for it? We have lots, uh, we've Google? generated, ah, uh, yeah, no, that's where we get information. Okay, and, I've and, been and doing where, it wrong. Yeah, and where might you go for knowledge? Well, you might go for science, but science literacy isn't what it should be. But even so, are you gonna find wisdom in the scientific literature? No, where do you? So when I, I ask people this, I do this work. So people, they, they have, they don't even have a, 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 the belief. They have like, a, they have an intuitive, profound hunger for wisdom, but they have no way to realize it. So what do they do? They try to, they try to craft whatever they can in a often haphazard, autodidactic and fragmentary fashion that often just makes all of that self-deceptive stuff worse. And so they get into all kinds of spirals individually and collectively. They get into echo chambers and confirmation bias. Uh, and, 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 and what happens is they will start to suffer mental health issues. The disconnectedness will produce a loneliness epidemic. They'll try to retreat into virtual reality because virtual games supply all of that missing meaning making. 
They give you the flow state. They give you a story that you belong to. They tell you how to level up. They'll do the virtual exodus. They'll pick up Earthsat's religions that they don't even recognize as religion. You can go to Comic-Con and talk to people and say, why are you engaging in such religious behavior? And they'll go, I'm not religious. And then they walk away dressed as Thor to meet other people dressed as fictional agents in this huge communitarian project that's going on. All of this is happening as people try and struggle to cultivate the, wis the wisdom that they need in order to reduce self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior and recover and enhance the meaning in life that we all want because we all want those meta drives satisfied. Where, John, do you think people should go for, for wisdom? Because I, I feel like, I don't know, I, for, I'll just ask that question because I'm a bit I'm a bit skeptical that they're like, where, where do you think people should go if not to popular culture or to, you know, to science or where, do, where should people go to find it? John, well, we can well, really uh, get gang up with my collaborator <laughs> on this because I think he's barking up the wrong tree. Okay. Well, <laughs> I just well, asked the well, question. Well, well, I'm trying to try create to... a bit of like vibes and a bit of antagonism, a bit of conflict. <laughs> okay. Well, let, let's try. Uh, let me try and answer James and we'll see what, what, what conflict might arise. Um, so I want to be clear on one thing, James. I don't think that you should pursue wisdom independently from knowledge. That, of course, is never the, 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 the philosophical tradition says they're not identical, but they're, um, they're interdependent. I think that, you know, wisdom has a lot to do with understanding and understanding is the ability to grasp the significance of what you know. Um, and, and so it has to do with that relevance process. I've been talking about that relevance realization process. So I didn't mean that. I did. In fact, I think that one of the things, one of the opportunities we have, and one of the things that should not be neglected is that we have really good cognitive science that can give us really good knowledge that help us in the cultivation of wisdom. Well, you so would say that mean... as a cognitive scientist, John. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, of course I have to say it. Uh, it, but it's not just ruthlessly self-promotional uh, because all of that stuff I was saying about the different kinds of knowing and how embodied our cognition is, that's, that's coming from that cognitive yes, science. Yes, I, I agree with you entirely on that. I have a bit of a cognitive science background myself, so I totally agree. I think it's, it's essential to understand ourselves in the fullest way we can. And if we can use Cogsci to do that, I, I agree with that. Right. And I think Cogsci is particularly well disposed to doing that precisely because it integrates it, it, right, many of the disciplines yes. that try and give us the best scientific understanding of ourselves. So it has, to my mind, I mean, this is a pragmatic argument, but it has the highest plausibility uh, of giving us the best possible self-knowledge, uh, scientific self-knowledge possible. Because it's but, interdisciplinary uh, and it includes yeah. the insights from multiple ways of right. understanding the world. Yeah, that, that seems and, and, reasonable. And, and the disciplines act as checks and balances on each other in, in very important ways. But don't you worry, this is, uh, if I've listened to a lot of your work over the last couple of weeks, many, many hours of your awesome podcast and YouTube, and I worry a bit about, you clearly have a synthesizing mind and you're bringing in insights from many different places and you're kind mm -hmm. of putting them together into one big picture. But I worry that sometimes the differences and the details can get lost in the big picture that actually well, yeah. the, 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 the meta story that's being told overtakes the, the kind of rigor at the smallest level, but that, that actually, I, I just, I guess I'm a little skeptical as to whether this meaning crisis is really a thing. I don't, I don't know how we would know, like what is the evidence that there really is a crisis of meaning in addition to the other crises that we can see more concretely. So I'm going to jump in here because this is where I disagree with James. You can now witness us like, the, you know, when you went home and then you went to someone else's house and then their parents started arguing and you just <laughs> have to sit at the table going, uh, what do I do now? But no, because I think the, the James and I touched on this earlier is that often, for instance, when I go into companies and, you know, I'm talking about meaning and meaning is but like no one's measuring meaning at work. No one is sort of like having a conversation about it. Like, it, I mean, like there's no graph pointing upwards and to the right saying meaning is at an all time high. 
But if you go and look at the reason that people leave companies, the things that they say that they want in a career, the things that they say, you know, it is to like the things that they complain about a company, that it's like meaningless. What religion did really well was uh, in a, I don't, and I don't want to be condescending to people who might be religious, but the way I see it is going sort of almost artisanally, almost sort of in a pragmatic way, go and discover ways of answering people's like profound needs. And you've got, you go and divide them up very neatly when our view of the world and our connection to ourselves and the journey that we're on does not feel deeply connected and we're not, you know, uh, then I think that that's where the meaning crisis comes from and that we are, we're lacking that at the moment. Uh, we're lacking this sort of way of answering our de de deepest needs in a coherent way because, and, and religion has done that for so many but people. But I don't know that it has. I, I think there are a lot of deeply religious people who do not have a profound sense of meaning in oh, their life. Oh, by the life. way, I'm not saying and, that every and also, person who is religious... No, I get it, I get it. But I actually don't know that the link between religiosity and sense of meaningfulness in life is very robust. And I also don't... I, I also think that it that actually, if we're going to say to get a sense of meaning in your life, we have to recover some element of religious practice. Well, that really goes against, in my mind, this idea that what wisdom is, is reducing our capacity for self-deception. Because I don't meet any more self-deceptive communities than the religious communities I work with. Like, they're full of self-deception. <laughs> it's all about reinforcing self-deception. And so I don't really know that that works for me as a connected idea. I think a lot of people are leaving religions precisely because they find them meaningless. That's why the countries are secularizing so much. So we don't want to go back there to get our meaning. That's where people are running away from. But, mate, you are a, an atheist who's the minister in a non-religious church. Yeah. Like, come on. That's and by true. the way, James is a humanist minister. Like, your, your very life belies the argument that you're making. John, decide which one of us is right. <laughs> well, well, I'm not, not going to do that. I'm not, I, but, but I do want to reply to James because I take the scientific question seriously. Uh, by the way, there is increasing empirical evidence uh, that people, and one of my grad students has just done this, some of this research, people that belong to an established wisdom tradition, often religious, do much better on measures, uh, uh, you know, wisdom measures, cognitive measures, than people outside of it. So uh, I, the idea that there isn't empirical evidence for what I'm saying, uh, I, I do want to push back on that. But the, the question, let, so what we can do, James is, I mean, you can do like you do, do like a disease. You do an inference to the best explanation in terms of a symptomology. And one way you work out the symptomology is you try and see the kinds of things that meaning protects against or reduces and see if they are increasing. So for example, we know that, you know, a sense of meaninglessness, um, it, it, you know, is related to increased senses of isolation, increased sense, uh, increase in uh, various mental health disorders, anxiety and depression. And of course, uh, this can result ultimately in suicide. And the West is having a significant problem with all of these. We know that meaning is protective, and this is based on the work of Mark Lewis, against addiction, because addiction is a narrowing of the participatory and perspective. And so we're having an addiction crisis. We know that we, that, so the WHO has now declared that there is such a thing as video game addiction because video games supply all of the structures that, you know, that religions used to supply about giving people an overarching narrative, etc. And, and, and that addiction is going up. That doesn't prove any of the propositions of religion. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that whatever else it was doing, partially what these things seem to be doing, insofar as they gave people ecologies of practices, is they did seem to be doing something because there has been some change in which these symptoms of a loss of meaning are measurably on the increase. That's, that's what I would be saying. So there is a clear symptomology that I think the inference of the best explanation for it, and that's how we deal with every disease, is that there is something like a significant loss in meaning. I think it's not just secularization. I think, and, and, and I want to speak to your second point, I think there has been a huge degeneration within religion itself. Um, I, I think 
The fact that, for example, most people, and, and this is a Western ethnocentric bias, we, we find the terms religion, faith, and beliefs synonymous. This would be bizarre to people before the 11th century in the West, and it'd be bizarre to many people in other cultures who don't even have a word for what we call religion. Uh, that's very much a Western word. So if we don't want to use that word, that's fine. What I'm interested in is, I'm not really interested, I, I often say this to people, don't tell me what you believe, tell me what you practice. I want to know what it is about these things, right, that functioned to make meaning for people. And, I, and I'm quite happy, in fact, my project is often, I want to exact and salvage those ecologies of practices out of a particular metaphysics that I think is no longer viable. And I think all of that can be done in a scientifically rigorous and responsible manner, while still being, I think, genuinely respectful. One of the things that has surprised me to existing religions, one of the things that surprised me is how many people, uh, when I present this aspect of spirituality, the, the procedural, the perspectival, and the participatory, say, actually, that's what I really cared about. And all this other stuff didn't really matter to me, but I didn't know what else to do. That happens a lot. Or even the people that are still committed to the dogma saying, yeah, but I you've really deepened my faith by all these other aspects. And so that's not as scientific as the other stuff I'm uh, saying to you, but that to me is... Uh, you know, a, a kind of at least, I don't want to call it anecdotal evidence because that's an oxymoron, but it's a kind of, uh, it could potentially generate a kind of evidence that, you know, we're tapping into something deep and important here. So, sorry, that was a bit of a rush of a speech, but I was trying to give you a comprehensive answer uh, to a lot of your concerns. I think it was a very good and useful answer because I think it really crisply articulates why you that why we should think there is a problem here. And just for the record, I do actually agree with you. I just think it's important to probe a bit to see yep, fine. because yep, yep. people tell stories about what's wrong in culture all the time. And a lot of, of them are very often reflections of the thing that they particularly care about, right? That yeah, people, yeah. people who care about a particular thing think that the problem with the world is it lacks the thing that they care about. And so it's important to be a little skeptical and say, well, what, what evidence do we have that the problem we really care about is a big problem? And I think you've given a, a, good, a good range of reasons to think that. So I appreciate it. James, I, 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 always I, lurking I, I, in these conversations, and he'll often not say much. And then he's got up his sleeve like a sort of uh, a hoodlum in the 20s uh, with a, <laughs> a, a question which is a real doozy for the guest who's kindly volunteered their time. So I apologize yeah, yeah, yeah. for uh, my uh, attack dog. No, no apologies. I'm a martial artist. I like this kind of thing. Um, right. so I want to say something about the one point that, that James said very briefly, but I think it's important. I also acknowledge that there are other crises, and they're very important. Um, I, I think the, the 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 and I think that they are they are starting to self-organize. I think the ecological crisis, the socioeconomic crises, um, uh, the the looming we've backgrounded it, but only temporarily. The looming energy crisis. These are all they're interacting um, in complex and ever complexifying. And accelerating ways. Now, the thing that the thing that I want to emphasize, though, is I think the meaning crisis um, interacts with that meta crisis in 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 a, in a way that I think I can make a plausible case for. We've tried, and we've got lots of evidence. This the purely educational strategy, which is let's give people more and more information and knowledge. I'm I'm no I'm no climate change skeptic or anything like that right let's give them the real knowledge it's all the, and that will afford the change and what we find is it doesn't so the meta data is our hypothesis that the knowledge would bring the change has been falsified or at least massively disconfirmed so it can't be the lack of knowledge although people are ignorant it has to do with right an insufficient understanding. And again, I don't mean propositional. I mean procedural, perspectival, and participatory understanding. People are not grasping the significance of the knowledge in the way that will afford change. And I think that is directly because of the kind of mental fog and 
cognitive scarcity, a, a scarcity of cognitive flexibility that the meaning crisis engenders in people's cognition. I think I, I really appreciate the way that you refer to the other crisis, like economic, um, political, etc. Because I think that one of my worries about a narrative that focuses so much on meaning is that it's really clear that if that it, at least it's clear to me that while a sense of meaningfulness in one's life might be a very important good, it cannot be detached from other goods because there are plenty of movements out there particularly right now which give people a profound sense of meaning which are very bad for the world like i'm thinking of extremist nationalist groups and one of the reasons we might say these are flourishing is because people are finding profound sense of meaning in them and i'm i believe that they are but i don't want them to join those groups just because they're meaningful to them does that make exactly exactly and that's why that's why i did not define um, wisdom solely in terms of meaning making, but also, you know, this deep, um, deep integration with the uh, reliable, the systematic and systemic reduction in self-deception. Uh, and, 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 and so, yeah, very much. And that's also why I argued that any ecology of practices that is trying to enhance wisdom and meaning in life has to be bound to the very best science we have. And so I think that if we want to make lives better, we don't just enhance meaning. We have to enhance meaning wisely such that people are reliably empowered to solve the problems that are ex- existential and potentially you know, extinction threats for us. Very much, very much. In fact, part of the urgency of my, of my work is not just that I am, um, I'm concerned about the bite of the meaning crisis in individual and collective lives, and people are suffering, but I'm also, because I, I sense the urgency of the meta crisis, I, 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 while well, I gave you my reasons, I'm convinced that unless we address the meaning crisis, our capacity to address the meta crisis is going to be seriously seriously um, weakened. The reverse is the case. I think that our attempts to address the meaning crisis have to be integrated with the empowerment and, uh, of the affordance of addressing the, the meta crisis. And I've explicitly argued that repeatedly. Hey, sorry to cut you off a little bit early there. The podcast was just running long because we're like, we just love what John Vilecki's got to talk about so much. And uh, you know, there's like we could always just keep on making these things longer and longer, but I'm not sure that's the answer either. So we just kept a little bit back at the end and we're going to work out when to put it out. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Um, you know, at the end of these things, always talk a bit about what's going on. Um, I actually just got off a call where I was starting uh, to do some well-being work with a uh, new client. Not sure if I can talk about it publicly, but yeah, that's a really exciting thing for the future. And uh Anyone who does listen to the end will know that like there's been a few, a uh, couple of the past weeks have been a bit tricky. You know, I, with my ADHD, like things can be like a bit up and down sometimes. Uh, and uh, I've often used this analogy that, you know, I, I look at life and like riding a bike. And there were periods when I was growing up when, you know, it just like I just fell off the bike, didn't even know the bike was there, didn't even know that I was doing it badly. Uh, And then gradually, as I've got a bit older, I sort of just figured stuff out for myself, some things which worked that I was able to stay on the bike for longer, get back on it quicker. And particularly since I got diagnosed, I found that, yeah, just putting things in place to make sure that I probably spot it a bit earlier, that these things happen uh, for less time. but uh, yeah, this week has been good. Been really great to launch this course. That's exciting. Uh, and uh, yeah, so do go and check that out. It's Lifefulness 101. Go to lifefulness.io forward slash lifefulness hyphen 101. Uh, and you can go and look at it. Like, obviously, we are all about community. And so it is, you know, something that you do in groups with other people and what we hope is that uh, people come for the course 
but then stay for the long-term community afterwards. It works as you can just come in and do it. But yeah, that's what we're in uh, this game for, is to create those meaningful long-term relationships. So uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks so much for listening. To go and find out more, you can you know, go to the Life and Those Project in, uh, uh, on Instagram and Facebook. That's where we are mostly. And uh, thanks to everyone who's involved in this. Thanks to James Craft. You are a legend. Love you, man. Uh, thanks to Mav Shetty, the brilliant producer. Thanks to Will Andrews, who's done the artwork. And thanks to Roman Rapak Miro Shot for making the music that you're listening to right now.